Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in a double parsha this morning, Acharimot and Kedoshim. Acharimot refers to after the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, which we have studied um, together, many of us, a lot. Um, it is a double parsha, so we're in the middle of those two for our uh, second um, year of the triennial reading. We're between. We're in the middle of Acharimot Kedoshim. Kedoshim is the middle parsha of the Torah in the middle book of the Torah. So Leviticus is the middle book. Um, Kedoshim is actually the middle parsha. Um, and so, so there's a lot here in uh, this part of Acharimot Kedoshim. And um, I want to reference that um, I got an email from someone saying that she was she was emailing about something else. She was trying to reach someone. She she used to be a member of the congregation a long time ago, and she was trying to reach someone from the congregation. And so she reached out to me to get their number. And she said, and by the way, I listened to your uh, Torah study online. I started listening to the podcast, the one on uh, Kashrut, and I turned it off uh, when I got to you being really flip and glib about a man sleeping with another man was an abomination and how glib that was. And that is, that line has hurt so many people. And she went on to, to say a whole bunch of stuff about what she thought about LGBTQ plus people that trans should not be put with LGBT. It doesn't, doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve the lesbian and gay community. This is a cisgendered heterosexual older white female telling me what she thinks about LGBTQ plus, you know, right. Emma Linda's like, yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, so I want to I want to take her criticism seriously um, because I think it, it's a I, I do not ever want to come off as glib or flip about things in Torah that have caused a lot of hurt and a lot of damage. So I I want to say as a lesbian I truly truly understand how that verse and that that verse is in our parsha this morning. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, the the, the verse about men lying together. So I, I don't I don't mean in any way to to minimize the kind of pain that people have experienced because they have been um, read as you know abominations or whatever. I, I think what I was trying to communicate is that the same word used for men sleeping together is used of eating bacon. So that because people want to load the gay stuff with moral and ethical stuff around the word toeva abomination. They want to load it onto um, the, the verse per, uh, that says men can't lie with, with another man, the way he lies with a woman, but um, they don't want to do that around the laws about eating shellfish. Right. And, and all I was trying to do is say for Torah, it's the same word. It's the same both are forbidden under this category of what is taboo for the people Israel to do. You will not behave. You're going to see it. Our Torah starts with all this stuff about you will not behave like the other folks who got kicked out of this land. So, so Torah lines up different behavior for Israelites than for other people. So it doesn't categorically say there's something wrong with eating things that live in the water and can crawl up on the land, like crabs, like other people can eat all the crab meat they want. They can eat all of the roasted pig they want. It doesn't matter. You Israelites will not do that. 
right? And we remember that Torah is very concerned about categories, very concerned that chaos is always threatening. This is the ancient worldview. Chaos is always threatening to undo creation. And part of the idea of keeping things um, going in an orderly, structured fashion is to keep categories very clear. So something that lives in the water, but also can crawl up and walk on the land, that, that you don't eat that because it's crossing those boundaries. So we've talked about this, but I want, but I want you to understand that it is the same thing when we're looking at the verse about a man lying the lyings of a woman with another man. That's the key is you will not, you will not lie the lyings of a woman if you're a man, because you've crossed the boundary then by allowing penetration. You have crossed the boundary and are behaving in the female sexual role. And that is crossing that boundary line. That's what, that's what it's, you know, scholars agree. That's a lot of what is going on with that prohibition. So I want to, I, I take it completely seriously that it's been used in a way that has been incredibly hurtful to people. Um, it doesn't mean anything about Torah's intention, nothing to use the word uh, to'eva, abomination, because it's used about kashrut uh, and other things as well. All right. So let's, let's look at our text. Um, this is not the very beginning of our um, Parsha, but I'm just going to start here. Cause I also want to put the verse. Uh, I also want to put the verse in context um, because there are some, so I'm, I'm basing myself today on, on Kamienkowski, Tamar Kamienkowski and her uh, Leviticus commentary, who wants to, who's, who's quote scholars who put that verse in the context of this stuff. What is this stuff? This stuff is, you shall keep my laws, my rules by the pursuit of which a human being shall live. I am Adonai. So this is about when you get to the land, um, you're not to behave like the Canaanites and the other people who got kicked out. What is some of that stuff? Leviticus 18 says all this stuff about uncovering nakedness. Whose nakedness can you not uncover? Meaning, who are you forbidden from being uh, sexually intimate with? Um, and so it's, this is the, these are the laws of incest. You shall not come near your uh, own flesh, right? So your own family members, your father, your mother, your father's wife. Your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's, whether born in the household or outside. Your son's daughter, your daughter's daughter, so your grandchildren. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, who was born into your father's household. She's considered your sister. She's considered off limits for sexual uh, relationship. Your father's sister, your mother's sister. Your father's brother, do not approach his wife. She is your aunt. Your daughter-in-law, right? Because her sexuality belongs to your son and it's too close a relationship to you. This is addressed, obviously, to the Israelite male. Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, of a woman and her daughter. You can't marry her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are kindred. It's considered... Here it's translated depravity. Do not marry a woman as a rival to her sister, right? So you, your, your wife's sister, while your, while the sister, while your wife is alive, her sister is off limits. 
the period of a woman being tame of having her menses, right? That is considered, you don't want to do that because then you become tame. Your neighbor's wife, don't sacrifice your offspring to Molech or profane the name of your God, Ani Adonai. Now comes our verse. Do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is an abhorrence. It is toeva. All right. So let's look at the Hebrew because that's translated in a way that adds some words that's not there in the Hebrew. As one lies. That's not exactly, you might could translate it that way. Some people might argue for that translation, but let's look at the actual Hebrew. Um, so a zachar, a male, as regards a male, lo tishkav, he shall not lie, mishkave isha, the lyings of a woman, right? So do you see how this fits with the the interpretation that I offered earlier. So what is the prohibition? It's on a zahar, not to lie, mishkave isha, the lyings of a woman. So with a, with a male, you will not lie, the lyings of a woman. So this is clearly, if, if we, when we talk about virginity, we're talking about a young woman who doesn't know mishkave zahar, the lyings of a male. So that must mean male vaginal penetration, Mishkave Zachar. She hasn't known that, Mishkave Zachar, the lyings of a man, meaning vaginal penetration. So what is Mishkave Isha? So in this context, people want to translate it as the, the, the opposite. It, it would be receptivity. It would be t- receiving penetration by a male, for a male, Mishkave Isha would be the person who, is, the male who is being penetrated. And in, in Kam Yankowski's book, she brings forward scholars who want to argue a couple of things. One scholar argues that what that means is um, because of what we've seen up here, all this stuff about who you're forbidden to sleep with because it is incest. Some scholars want to read this actually as being directed at males that they can't that it's that they can't have incestuous relationships with other males that it's not just the uh females that are forbidden but the males as well okay that's that's one argument and that that's why it's in this section um and others want to argue that the the prohibition is against the penetrator that you shall not treat another man as you treat a woman in the sex act and other people want to say, no, it's really against the person who is Mishkave Isha, who's lying, the lyings of a woman, that the prohibition is against a male putting themselves in the position to be penetrated because that is a female role. And that is the real issue is putting themselves in the role uh, of, of passive uh, recipient during the sex act, that is a female role. That is a gendered uh, experience. So that is forbidden as well as carnal relations with animals, right? So these are all the all of the sexual intimacies that are prohibited. Okay. So so 
So that is the context of that verse. That's, that's it in its entirety. Um, so there are many interpretations of what Mishkeve Isha actually means. We, we don't, we, we can pretty much guess that it's about being passive in the sex act for a male, that, that that's not okay. So part of the question is why not? Like what's, what's the issue? Um, and a lot of people want to argue it's because, again, what we said about, you know, um, separation of categories and the male is the powerful one. The male's the penetrator. The male's the actor in that in sexual encounters. Receptivity is is absolutely labeled feminine, female. And so to cross those categories, to cross those lines for a male is prohibited. Remember, a male's not allowed to dress in women's clothing either. It is the same I believe it is the same idea that you don't dress in women's clothing because then you're blurring gender lines that that's not, that's not about sex. That's about, I think Torah had some insights that are, that predate our understanding. Torah understood. Uh, it, and I'm just going to argue this on no grounds other than my guts, but the Torah had an inkling about gender. We know there are gender issues in other cultures, surrounding cultures, where people either had body parts that were of both genders and or had male body parts, let's say, but were very feminine. And um, so also probably had female hormones and um, that these people were recognized in many cultures surrounding uh, ancient Israel, that they were recognized as crossing the line. They were liminal figures and therefore they were holy figures. So these were people who were were considered closer to the realm of the spirit because they violated, if you want to use that word, um, the strict binary of both sex and or gender. And and so I think Torah is not ignorant of that, right? The, The ancient Israelites were not ignorant of that. But what they're saying is, no, they're not liminal figures. They're not closer to the spirit world. You're just not supposed to do that. Pick male or female assign a gender identity, whatever the sex is, you, you, you know, if it's, if it's unclear, you assign an identity and then you stick with that gender identity or you're, or you're inviting chaos. You're inviting the forces of chaos to uh, undo uh, aspects of society. And we can't have that. Like who, who wants that to happen? Um, what does this say about lesbians, Bert? Nothing. Because, and this was explained to me in rabbinical school when I was already understanding that, that I was probably gay. Um, so I raised my hand to say, so what about lesbians? And right, of course, you know, the rabbi choked on his, you know, tea and, and challah and, and you know, could, could barely speak, could barely answer me. And this is a man I loved and adored. He could barely answer me. Um, but he was like, it, it took him about 15 minutes to get out the following sentence. Um, in lesbian intercourse, there is no penetration. So it is not, it's not a problem. It's not considered by Torah. And I'm like, really, <laughs> really, really? So, right. So obviously he was ignorant of lesbian sex. That's number one. But, but of course what he meant was, unless it's, penetration by a penis, it doesn't matter, right? It really doesn't even register on the radar if it doesn't involve a penis. They don't really care. 
um, it's, it's, who cares? It's not a big deal. So when, when we look at some of the halachic, te- Mehmet's laughing, when you look at some of the, um, re- some of the commentaries on this, they say, like, what if your wife is having sex with other women? It's not forbidden by Torah. Is that okay? And I forget who the commentator is. Famous commentator says, you know, it's not forbidden by Torah, but she shouldn't do it. It's not, it's not lo na'im. It's not nice. It, it's not nice. She, she, she shouldn't be doing that with her friends. Right. So it's like, okay, it's not considered polite. You know, it's not, it's considered, eh, you know, whatever. So really it doesn't, it doesn't really register. So that's, that's the answer to that. So, um, so, so, but remember, so someone wrote about, you know, the, the harshness of the sentence, but, but you have to remember if you gathered wood and made a fire on Shabbos in public, it was a capital offense because you, you, you don't separate, right. The religion and the ritual and all of those things from the civic law, they are all together. And so if you really are nervous about something, then you want to make sure it's a pretty harsh uh, punishment. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Um, I I can point you in the direction of wonderful commentary um, for those of you who want uh, to know and and do more with this or study more about this or reconstruct this more for yourself. Um, again, this is one of those texts I don't really need to. I just hate it that it's used so much by the haters, you know, to, to justify hate. Um, it just is not, it's just not there about hate, right? It, it, it's just not there. So, um, all right. So unless there's anything else, I want to move on um, to to more about the holiness code. Okay. So we've been talking about these laws of like holiness. What does that mean? But I, but I want to go back and say that we, you know, we've talked about the prophets and everyone's asking about the prophets, which is great. So the early prophets are already are pushing back against the priesthood. They're pushing back against r- ritual being about form and function only, and not about what it's supposed to mean in the lives of Israelites So early prophets are already talking about why aren't we talking about behavior in everyday life more? Sacrifice this, sacrifice that, dashing the blood this, dashing the blood that. Okay, like bringing your first fruits, blah, 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 blah. That's all lovely. But what about what it means to be a good person? And so the early prophets are yelling and screaming about this. And and there has to be a response, right, from the establishment. And some people say that this is the response. The holiness code is a response in the priestly world, in the priestly realm of Leviticus, a response to that critique, a response to the critique that the priestly system does not care about people's behavior in the everyday world and in everyday life. They only care about the details of keeping the system running and that this is the answer. So we have J, E, P, and D. We all know those four sources. Um, most biblical scholars give this set of legislation, the Holiness Code, it's like chapter 17 through 24 or 26, um, gives this collection of laws the name H for Holiness Code. So J, E, P, H, and D. So P slash H, right? So the holiness code is another school of the priestly school, 
possibly responding to the early prophets. So a, so a, a P that's responsive to the critiques of the early prophets. So now you have to think about is P early or late? Does H know about D? So there's some of that tension. There's some of that question. Like, is H ignoring D? Does H really just not care about D? Is D after H? Um, So that is not an argument I'm terribly interested in. So I can't tell you a lot about it. Um, I just think it's important to see that within within P, within the priestly legislation, there is there is an understanding that there's something outside the sacrificial and temple cult system that is important. And it is some of the best stuff we have. This is why I said some of Bert's favorite stuff. Um, And so let's look a little bit at H. Let's look at, at the holiness code about how how it. Um, how it shows up uh, in the lives of w- how uh, Israel was supposed to live. All right. So first of all, Kadoshi, right? This is the Parsha from Kadosh, right? This idea of you shall be Kadosh, you shall be holy. So I want to talk about that in a, in a minute. So let's hold the idea of thinking we know what holiness is. Let's just hold that for a sec. So God, so Moshe, God speaks to Moshe saying, address the entire Edah, the entire community of Israel and say to them, Kiddoshim to you, y'all shall be holy. Because I, Yudhe am Kadosh, am holy. So the first thing to know about holiness is that it is collective. This is addressed to Israel as a collective. This is not an individual commandment. So yes, there's going to be individual, each individual is going to have obligations. But the sense is that if you all take this seriously, each of you in your own actions, in your own lives, you will create an Ada. you will create a community that is holy. And that's what seems to be the concern um, of Torah that y'all shall be holy. And if you remember, we, we are to be a, a, an amsegula. We will be a precious people to God, um, and a nation of priests, right? And a, and a holy people. So so that that is the goal. It is collective, which, which if you think about it today, like <laughs> how we doing, <laughs> you know, America 2021, how we doing <laughs> as a collective, like, each of us can feel maybe pretty righteous about certain aspects of whatever, but as a collective, how we doing? Yeah. Think about that for a little while. All right. So what's the beginning of this discussion of being holy? Well, it starts at home. Holiness starts at home. You will honor your mother and your father. Tira'u is what's used, right? You, You will revere, but it comes from, right, this verb for, being in fear or in awe of. So you will treat them as, as figures uh, whom you regard with awe, um, fear, or reverence, uh, right? And in the same sentence, vishabtotai tishmoru. So, and you will, you will keep my Shabbat. I am Adonai, your God. You will not make idols or molten gods. I am Yodhei when you sack, because I am Yehovah, your God, right? I'm I'm your God, not those other things. 
uh, when you sacrifice an offer of well-being to Adonai, sacrifice it so that it is accepted on your behalf. So this is talking about the Israel. This is directed at the Israelite layperson who's bringing a sacrifice that they're going to eat from it. It shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it, right? And here's what you can't eat, the stuff of the third day. Um, you will be cut off from your kin if you don't do it right. If you don't, if you don't eat that meat in the proper way, it's considering insulting to God to take what you've offered to God and treat it in any way that is outside of the rules. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or the gather the gleanings of your harvest. Okay. So what does this mean? So most Israelites who were, who had power, who were comfortable, to, to wealthy were people who owned land. They, this was an agricultural society. They owned land. And so harvesting, your harvest was, of course, your pay, your salary, if you will. And so what we're told here is you, you don't get to reap all the way to the edges of your field. And if stuff falls, you're not allowed to go pick it up. It doesn't belong to you. You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruits of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Yudhe am your God. So when you go over your vineyard, you can't pick it bare. If there are grapes that haven't really yet ripened, they stay there. Um, and if stuff falls, it stays there. It belongs to whom? to the poor person and the ger. They are given the same status here. So the ger is the sojourner with you, the one who doesn't have the rights of citizenship. They have some rights as a resident alien, but not all of them. They are put here with the ani to say they are entitled to come pick up that stuff and it doesn't belong to you. So this is not optional. This is not, you know, if your heart so moves you, you should give. This says to the to the Israelite farmer, there's stuff that's <laughs> you think is yours that's not yours. Let's be clear. The land really doesn't belong to you. Of course, it belongs to itself. It belongs to God. Um, and you get to use it and you get to use most of it, but not all of it, because this other stuff belongs to the poor. So. That leads us kind of logically into, so you shouldn't steal. Like if that belongs to the poor and you harvest it, you're stealing. Lotik novu, so you shall not steal. You can't take what's not yours. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. Because the minute you start that, the minute you start getting comfortable with sheker, with, with lying, right? That starts to pull at the fabric of, of society. Why? I had a teacher explain it uh, this way, that when you lie to someone, you puncture a hole in the fabric of their reality. Reality is one thing. And when you lie, you take a little piece of someone's reality out because it's because you're convincing them of something that's not reality when you lie. And when you start to punch holes in people's reality, you start to make Swiss cheese of people's understanding of what's going on. And that that is that starts to uh, rot the underpinnings of a just society. So, again, you you shall not use my name for Shakir to lie. Right. So now you're going to draw on God's name to give your lie a little more credence. You are not allowed to do that. 
You shall not defraud your fellow or commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until mornings. What is this talking about? This is talking about the day laborer, the person who depends on their daily wages to survive. You are not allowed to keep those till the next day. You have to pay them at the end of their workday because they depend on that to then go out and buy something to eat that night and the next morning or to pay what little rent they have or to take care of their kids. You cannot hold that money so that you get get interest on it or whatever. Or you're just lazy or you, you can't do that. I think of our housekeeper whenever I read this verse that, you know, Judy's always like, oh, I forgot to go to the ATM, right? And Judy rushes to the ATM to go get cash to pay our housekeeper. We can't say to her, oh, you know what? We didn't get down the hill today. So sorry, we'll pay you next week, right? She needs that money to feed her family. She needs the cash that day. You shall not insult the deaf. Well, it's actually not insult. Lotikalel, you will not curse a deaf person because they can't hear the curse. So that's not fair. You can't curse a deaf person and you won't put, you know, a stumbling block in front of the blind. You shall fear your God. I am Yorevafe. I don't think this means literally a deaf person and a blind person. I think this, well, obviously you shouldn't do that either, but I think this is more about um, someone who doesn't understand. You can't take advantage of that right and and trip them up because they don't you you can't have someone sign a contract who's illiterate and can't read right it, you, you can't trick someone um, into doing something that's beneficial for you or or, or makes them uh, vulnerable um, when you know they have a vulnerability you know they're deaf or you know they're blind meaning you know they they can't read or 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 differently abled mentally and can't take information in whatever whatever it is you're, you're not allowed to take advantage of that All right, people, you shall not render an unfair decision. So this is about mishpat. This is about the justice system. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kinsmen fairly. In righteousness, in justice, will you judge? What is this saying? This is saying that when you are a judge, when you are adjudicating a case, you cannot show deference in deciding the verdict. You can't show deference to the poor or the rich. I think we get the rich part. We don't get the poor part. So Torah is saying, of course, we understand there's a tendency to rule in favor of the rich because right if you're the judge if you want to rule in favor of the rich they can help you out in the future they have power they have connections so you rule in their favor but what we don't often consider which torah does is that you can't show favor to the poor either you can't render a decision as a judge um because someone's poor and so you rule that they are innocent because you feel sorry for them because you feel bad for them Um, And so Torah is very concerned with a judiciary that is both independent and a judiciary that only judges based on the facts. And when I, when Torah, when I study this with B'nai Mitzvah kids, which I have been doing for 24 years, um, when, when we study this, I'm, I ask them, so how are we doing? (laughs) 
right? Like, how are we doing in the justice system? Just looking at the facts. And every single kid I've had says doesn't happen, (laughs) right? It doesn't happen that they just look at the facts. They know that, you know, one of the biggest issues, of course, in our American justice system is race. So people are... People are, our kids are very aware that the justice system is tilted, you know, against people of color and the poor who don't have access to a really robust defense, uh, who often have no, feel like they have no choice but to settle uh, for a lesser uh, sentence and so plead guilty to an offense, even if they are innocent. Um, so this, this is one that, ha- unfortunately, this is one of the laws of Leviticus that has not lost its relevance. Uh, and it's not something we can say, oh, yeah, well, we fixed that a long time ago. <laughs> not so much. Do not deal basely with your countrymen. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. I am the I am Yudhe I don't love this translation. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow. What does it say? Lo ta'amod al dam re'acha. You will not stand on the blood of your neighbor. And a lot of commentary wants to translate this as don't stand by while the by the blood of your neighbor is being spilled or might be spilled. Right. So that you are responsible for what's happening to your neighbor um, and that you have to you have to act. You can't stand idly by as is often how we we hear it talked about and how we hear it translated. Um, if we take these laws seriously uh, as being indicative of holiness, what does that require of us? Um, right. Is it only literal bodily danger that their blood might be spilled? I don't think so. But even if we take it literally, who is Re'acha? You know, who is our neighbor? And if we take, even if we want to go that it means only about murder or about people being killed. Well, let's think about how many places in this world we know People are being murdered, even as we speak, genocide and unspeakable acts of violence are happening in all kinds of places in this world. And are we are we guilty in some way of ta'amod al-damrecha, of standing on the blood, right, of people that we know are being hurt that if we really motivated, um, we might could help? I think it's an important question. So this is not just talking about action here. Torah says you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Okay. So how can you legislate emotion? Well, obviously you can't punish this because how, how do you punish something that is going on in somebody's heart? It is clearly understood that it is God who, sees all of this. It is God who who will act uh, in terms of what the consequences are for violating this because no other human being can really know some of this stuff. But so hatred in your heart for your um, your brother is considered not a good thing because if you allow that to grow, if you allow that to fester, if you allow that to dominate, then what's going to happen eventually is action that is unjust action that is something that's not going to be good for the kind of society uh, that Torah wants the Israelites to be building. All right. So you shall reprove your kinsmen, your, your, someone of your people, 
but don't reprove them in a way that you now bring a sin upon yourself. What does this mean? You are obligated to address behavior that you see in someone of your people, but you're not supposed to do it in a way that then brings sinfulness on you. So what, what are some of the examples of that? The rabbis use humiliation and embarrassment that if you're going to call someone out, you don't do it publicly. Now a sin is on you if you've humiliated someone publicly. And they call it halbanat panim, the whitening of the face. And they liken it to murder. Embarrass, public embarrassment of someone is likened to murder. Because people can't unsee that. And now the person can't ever be who they were in the eyes of everybody else because you've humiliated them. So... Um, we have to hold one another accountable, says Torah. You have to do that, but you shall do so in a way, you will confront them in a way that doesn't then make you somebody who's who's also done wrong. And that's a tricky one, isn't it? Think about cancel culture, right? This is a really, really interesting one for me right now. When we talk about microaggression, like all this craziness that's happening in um the academic world, for those of you who are in that world, all this craziness about teachers can't say certain things to students or if students get triggered, you know, they they can say what they want, but the teacher can't respond. I mean, it's all this weirdness around and, and being called out and cancel culture. I'm, I'm a little I'm very concerned, actually, about some of the stuff that's going on. Um, but I also feel like. Um, there's a big part of our country that over four years did nothing about about calling out what was actually happening, um, which was seriously disturbing also, right? That so much stuff was going down that was not, uh, it wasn't confronted. All right. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Here we go. Bert Kleiman is jumping up and down. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ani Adonai, I am Yudhei You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? That you are to take seriously how you treat someone else, your neighbor. Notice it doesn't say your friends because your friends, that's easy to do. Your neighbors, right now, I'm in month six of the renovation next door. <laughs> You have to love your neighbors, even if they get you up at 8.30 in the morning with a saw and hammering and banging and clanging. You shall love your neighbors yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Lisa feels my pain, right? Seven months for Lisa. I'm, I'm getting there. You shall observe my laws. You shall not let your cattle mate with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not put on cloth from a mixture of two kinds of material. This is the famous shatnas, right? So this idea, again, of categories, of boundaries. Um, in in Kamienkowski's commentary, she quotes David Seidenberg, who I showed you before about what animals we can eat. And he, so he's, he brings up the idea of genetic, genetically modified food. Can we mess with, right, splicing the genes of, right? And right, so what if it helps feed starving populations? And keeps crops safe from, you know, things that would eat, would invade them like locusts and all those kinds of things. What, what, what then? It's like, so where do we carry this Torah stuff forward? Like that you shouldn't kind of corrupt the, the, the species of things. 
and where can we or should we? All right. If a man has carnal relations with a woman who is a slave and has been designated for another man, but has not been redeemed or given her freedom, there shall be an indemnity. They shall not, however, be put to death since she has not been freed. Torah acknowledges that women who are slaves are not to be held accountable for certain behavior because they are not free. They're not free to choose. This is how we understand things about like with minors, right? That, that we don't, they, they are not free to choose, says our laws around intimacy. Um, but he must bring to the entrance of the tent of meeting as his guilt offering, a ram of the guilt offering, uh, and the priest shall make expiation for him in the sin that he has committed. All right. So, um, so this goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on in really great ways about you can't eat from a fruit tree until the third year. You need to give it right some time to, to uh, grow in the fourth year. It shall be set aside for uh, its Kodesh. It is, it is holy. It is to be set aside uh, only in the fifth year. Uh, can you eat of its fruit? You can't eat any blood. You can't practice divination or soothsaying. And on and on and on goes our wonderful uh, Torah text about how we are to live uh, as a society, how, what kind of society we are to create. It isn't just about the cultic system, says H. It is about how you do business. It is about how you treat one another. It's about what kind of society, what kind of things you want underpinning your society, what, what things will undermine society. It's about the justice system, right? It's about all, all realms of human behavior. Nothing is off limits for Torah uh, in terms of where uh, holiness should be a concern and, and how holiness directs us to live. Right. So I, what I want to what I want to say is when we talk about the holiness, co- oh, Barry's got his hand up. Go ahead, Barry. Um, yes, I wanted to uh, come back to the Toeva thing. Um, uh, I, I believe our sages uh, once said that Toeva means Toe Ataba, means you're, you're mistaken, which is not as harsh as uh, shikets, um, like eating pork. So the rabbis are, what I hear you saying is that the rabbis were actually trying to lean towards more leniency in translating that than, than other issues, um, trying to be compassionate to human beings they know are. Yeah, so those who eat pork are not in a position to say anything about men who lie with other men as one would lie with a woman. Right, <laughs> right, right. And so that... That's kind of the point I was trying to make when I got called glib and flip. Um, so what uh, what I want to say about uh, Bert, yeah. Yeah, just about love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, there have been many different restatements of that, which take it in a lot of different directions. Uh, one which is interesting is uh, don't, don't do unto, one is do unto your neighbor as you would have your neighbor do unto you. Another one is don't do unto your neighbor as you would have your neighbor do unto you because their tastes might be different. And there are, in fact, many Christians who believe that love your neighbor as yourself is actually a Christian idea and not a Jewish idea. Yes, thank you. Um, it, has, it has some merit to it because re'echa doesn't mean neighbor per se. It's debated, the, the, the meaning of the word. Doesn't mean only your your kinfolk 
your genetic connections or does it mean also the stranger well we get told we get told explicitly in Torah, right to you know protect the gear you were gerim you know ki gerim hayitam beretz mitzrayim so we you know the gear is certainly there um and to love them yeah um and uh and so it's there for sure in Torah by by itself um and uh and Re'echa, you know, for me, is like, you know, the, the folks you're with. <laughs> you know, it's like the folks you wind up with. That you, So you're, whoever it is, your fellow human being, like, love them as yourself. I think what Bert was saying is kind of intuitive. Like, if you really treat, love someone else as you love yourself, I think it's pretty intuitive to say, so don't do to them what you don't want done to you. It's not, it's not that hard, people, right? But sometimes it's super hard not to smack someone in the head, right? So... Right, you don't want that done to you. Don't do it to them. That's easy to say. Sometimes not so easy to refrain from doing. Right, um, and parents certainly know that. You certainly know about. Okay, okay. Remember that whole. We have to. Bella, are you wanting to say something? You unmuted. Are you wanting to speak, Bella Shapiro? No. Okay. When people unmute, we we think it means they want to talk. So, see or George, you can raise your hand. There you go. I got a basic question. We can interpret all the specifics as you've done and, and uh, very complex, but the basic issue is I am the Lord. I am holy. Be like me. And you see the Lord uh, hardening the heart of the Pharaoh uh, twice. You see the Lord doing what we now call uh, collateral uh, destruction. Uh, and a whole bunch of things like that. So that confuses me because that's inconsistent, I think, with many of the specifics. All right. So I'm not shocked that you went there, George. Right. This, 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 is, this is your core challenge with all of this stuff. Yeah. Right. If you yeah. talk about a God who does all this kind of craziness and awfulness, why would we want to be imitatio dei? Why would we want to imitate the divine? Um, so I get it that that's kind of your core conflict. Um, what I'm going to say is what I always say to that core conflict. It's not unjust in the Torah, the way God behaves. We're allowed to go to war in Torah. If it's a just war, God's war against the Egyptians was just. Oh, but his hardening of the heart. That was just, that was completely just. Oh, but I thought his own explanation or her own explanation was uh, uh, to show his own power. Yes, and that is that is okay for God. That is okay for God. We, I can't harden anybody's heart. So obviously I can't do what God does that way. For Torah, it's defensible if it's God doing it and it's something that humans can't do, right? So... Because your your core conflict, I think, is is in looking at some of the behaviors of the God of the Torah and finding them reprehensible. So why would we want to do so? If we're going to be like God, why would we want to do these horrible things? Torah doesn't understand it that way. That that's that's what I'm trying to say. So um, so I'll leave it there. I mean, there's not much more to say. Torah does not understand it as a bad thing. What God does in those instances. We, we can and say, okay, so we don't want to imitate those parts of the divine, but I don't believe in a God who did that anyway, right? So 
right? That's not, I don't believe in a God who does that, who acted, who hardened Pharaoh's heart, who wiped out the Egyptians. I don't believe in that. I do believe that, that what's still relevant for me about some parts of Torah are parts like this. Parts of this is, are not relevant for me, but part of the holiness code really still remains important, which is what, what does being holy mean? If God is holy and we are called to be like God in George, I'm going to, I'm going to modify it. We are called, we are called to be like God in being holy like God, not in everything like God, because we're not God, but where are we called to be like God, where God acts in the world as Kadosh or, or is by essence Kadosh, we are to emulate that in our lives, in the society that we build that is still meaningful for me to ask ourselves, what does that mean? So not all of this obviously is relevant, but, but some of it is. And the commentators really, so I was watching, I was watching this show. Um, if any of you have seen the show, Ted Lasso um, on Apple TV, if you haven't, um, it's worth getting Apple TV for a month uh, just to watch <laughs> this show called Ted Lasso. So it was uh, so it's one of the few things I've loved on television in the last few years. Um, so, so amazing. So sweet. So f- it's funny. It's warm. It, it, it makes you it like restores your faith in humanity. It's just it's a wonderful show. So anyway, so in it, what one the coach, there, there's two coaches. One coach looks at the other. So Alexandra says the best. Right, Alexandra? It's the best, the best, the best. We invited our neighbors over to watch it with us. And so we watch it again. <laughs> with our neighbors, which which was I caught much more the second time than I got the first time. It was amazing. So, but but in one episode, one coach turns to the other coach and says, because the the coach is like repeating this word over and over and over and over and over. Um, and so the coach says, uh, "Word become a sound," and the cat and the coach goes, "Yeah." So you know, sometimes you have a word and you know the word, but then all of a sudden it becomes like it happened to me once, and one of the few I remember is thick. I'm like thick. Thick, thick, thick. What is thick? Thick, like put it thick. Like what is thick? Like so, a word became a sound, and it's like it stops having meaning. And it's like, what does it mean? I'm not sure. Thick, like thick, thick. Think about how weird a word that is. Thick. Like so, so this, so it's kind of a concept you know, a word you know, but it becomes in your brain a thing. And I feel like that's how I sometimes feel about this word holy, holiness, right? It comes from separate and apart. We know that. It comes from setting something aside as being assigned to the divine and therefore we translate that as holy. But what does that mean when you say you'll be an am kadosh, an am set aside, an am set apart? Okay, you'll be distinct. You'll be distinctive. How? How, how does just being, just being separate doesn't tell us anything. You're just going to be different from everybody else, period. That doesn't tell us anything. So I'm not satisfied with uh, y'all will be set apart, set aside, because I am, says God. I'm set aside. I'm distinct. I'm different. Then whom? So I don't love just the distinctive set aside, set apart. Okay, different from the cultures around you that are corrupt. That's how it's interpreted. Mm not so satisfying, right? So we kind of assume we know what we mean by holy, but I don't know that we do. Like what, what, holiness, what is that? Like, 
you know, so we, we were talking with Micha Goodman in our Hartman session this week about um, Achad Ha'am. He was teaching us about um, the different kinds of secularism in early Zionism. Um, and that if you don't really believe in the God that George has a problem with, why use that language at all? Achad Ha'am says, just cut out the middleman. Just talk about being good. Talk about being righteous. Talk about being ethical. Why do you have to use words like holy? Like, like forget God. Like, we don't believe that anyway so why use that language and and i i think and i had this conversation with i was doing a group for um uh qt uh qt wellness which is queer teen wellness and talking to queer teens and i was talking about that that because i believe the language of sacralizing something elevates its importance there's a way that using the language of sacred obligation versus obligation, there's a way that sacralizing this stuff gives it more power. So do I believe George in a God who hardened Pharaoh's heart? No. Do I still believe there is something more powerful and bigger than us in this universe that if we draw on it, capital I, we live lives of greater holiness Yes. What do I mean by that? I don't know. Judith? I'm agreeing with you, shaking my head, but I have two questions. Uh, First of all, would the parting of the Red Sea and then drowning all of the Egyptians qualify in something God does that we can't do, so it's justified in war? Um. I'm not sure exactly what we're asking, like that we can't split the sea and then bring it back on the Egyptians. Right. Right. We can't do that. But like in war, we're allowed to kill the enemy. Right. And the second question is, I have read, I thought it was in the Torah, that before we eat, we have to feed our animals because they're totally dependent on us for food. And if we don't feed them, they don't know that they're going to be fed. That's rabbinic. So the rabbis say that it's improper to sit down to eat before you have fed your animals. Um, And I think, I don't know if they don't know they're going to eat. I think it's, it's, if they're hungry, the rabbis understand it as cruel to have them smell food and see you eat. And they're not eating. And they're not eating. They're hungry. So that it's, it's not nice to do that. That you, uh, you know, the rabbis also say you can't eat standing up because that's what the animals do. You should sit down and be a human being, be a mensch, sit down at the table and act like a human being, okay. right? So feed your animals first. And also you shouldn't stand at the kitchen counter, Amy Bernstein and eat because that is considered animal behavior. Not nice. Shut up, Emelinda. <laughs> That's what my wife says to me. <laughs> so, right, but, it, but it's so, cause the rabbis are extending a lot of things saying, you know, if you're not allowed to do this, well then doesn't that kind of, if we take that to its logical conclusion, you know, or if I'm really going to try to be a good person, wouldn't that extend to right. Um, certain things like, right. Anyway. So, right. so they extend a lot of these things in, um, in their writings and in their law, in halacha, a lot of these things get expounded and expanded, expounded upon and expanded. Because um, if you're taking the principle, then if I apply that principle in lots of different places, this is what this is what it would. It so would widen, widen them all. Investigate and widen the understanding. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because because then you're expanding holiness, right? All right, Bob. Yes. Yeah, my, um, well, first of all, um, I identify with Ted Lasso. I was a, uh, a soccer coach 
who didn't know soccer. I didn't know offside when it started. <laughs> um, uh, had a, a sort of spirited conversation with a good Christian friend who stated that um, the, the Old Testament, as he called it, um, was much harsher than the New Testament, and that people found that Testament harsh. They still understand it, uh, but it, it has a secondary place because it's so harsh. I see a lot of these rules as what they're leaning on. Okay, so um, so a couple of things. First of all, a lot of what they're talking about is the God that George doesn't like. Um, right. That God is always angry and vengeful and schmicing us and spanking us and, you know, like God's nostrils are always flaring. So, so they love to pull on those examples to say the New Testament is so much gentler, right? That Jesus was all about love and this is a God of love. And so, first of all, that's just a false dichotomy. That's number one. Right. That's just you, like, just really um, number two, they pull on the Old Testament when they want to. So when they want to, they use the Old Testament as a bludgeon, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, they pull it. They pull whatever they want to from the Old Testament and ignore other stuff. And I would argue the other way that if Christians like if they behaved and based their society on these laws in Kedoshim, they would be creating a much more respectful, gentler society, right? You know, you have to leave food for the poor and you have to let them glean. You have to let them harvest it. Really? Okay. Right. So um, I, I just, for, I, th- I think it's a false dichotomy and I would not say they lean on these laws. I would say that these are part of the laws that prove the opposite, that, that the, that the, laws of Torah are coming to say, you need to build a society that's respectful of each other, that's respectful of the poor, that you should love each other. You shouldn't hate your neighbor in your heart. You shouldn't like take bear a grudge against each other. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't set up systems that, that relegate people to, to living on the street. Cause right, I mean, and, and, and that's the, the thing that rankles me is that they point to the, laws about homosexuality and say, see, we should be mean to homosexuals and not accept them. Uh, and that's what irritates me. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And they don't just pick and choose from Torah, by the way, they pick and choose from Jesus. Like if you take Jesus, there's not one reference to homosexuality in the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, not one. But if you take a friend of mine told me that a Christian pastor friend told me, or I read it in some great inspiring Christian writing, but take the New Testament and cut out every reference to taking care of the poor and you have Swiss cheese left of the New Testament, right? But they don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about, you know, the least among you, what you do to the least among you, you do to me. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about the poor. They want to talk somehow about abortion. It's like, where are the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth is abortion or homosexuality? It's not there. Like, but right. So Bob, people who want to cherry pick are really good at it. Yeah. And they get really well versed in it. Right. And we, we just have to know enough Torah to be able to go, uh, nah, like, you know, like sometimes I'll take the bait, but 
most times I don't take the bait. <laughs> it's like, because my ultimate answer is, nah. Well, when they're the super articulate answer after 25 years of doing this and five years of study and my whole life. Nuh-uh. Well, when they're your irritating in-laws, you want to fight. Uh, yeah, that's the worst. When it's at a table, that's the worst. Um, so, Mehmet, you had your hand up. Um, well, part of it was already answered. But for the last few weeks, you've been um, uh, referencing to the Torah as uh, the world as it is. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why Christians or anybody else doesn't like the Old Testament because it's about the world as it is, and they don't like truth. They can't. They can't face the truth. That's that's the reason. Uh, we will all love to have an ideal world, but this is not the case, and it has never been the case in history, human history. That was what I was um, uh, uh, was trying to say. To quote uh, that famous sage, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. Right, right. Um, So, yeah. So, um, and I think also the world as it is, a lot of us aren't happy with the world as it is, but that's kind of the point, right? You know, is to face the world as it is and move it one step closer to where it should be, you know, in all kinds of different realms, all right. Um, so we are at 11.06, people. I'm sorry. I've kept you over my commitment um, with y'all. Um, so, yeah. So there's, you know, lots of stuff about Muslim practice. Like, I, I, yeah, maybe next time. <laughs> like, um, And right. And like Barry says, like, it depends on which part of history we look at. Um, and I don't know if you're referencing the Muslim stuff or Jewish stuff, but but all are true. Right. Um, as a reconstruction, it's like we it's an evolving religious civilization. So was Islam. And so it's it's not easy to just say, what do Muslims think about this? What does Islam say about this? Because there's as many kinds and periods and places in the world where Islam was practiced. Um, but, you know, if you're asking, what does it say in the Quran? I don't know um, what it says in the Quran about about that. But uh, we should also read tribal codes, not only the um, the holy texts. It's a lot more about tribal codes than holy texts. Yeah, right. But it's another chapter to discuss. Right. Um, so I see there's a conversation in the chat about abortion. Um, so, like, we can talk about that another time. Okay, Alexandra, you're the last one. Thanks, Rabbi Amy. Um, just in light of everything we have spoken about today, can you kind of give us the gist of sort of where you were wanting to take us today from the initial conversation? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think what I was trying to get at at this last question anyway, was what if we just ask, what, what if we were building a society based in holiness, what would that call for? And for me, that that's a relevant and important question as Jews to be asking. And we look to Torah to, to start the conversation, not to end it, right? Not to be the solution. We look to Torah to say, okay, so, so what have our people taken seriously for a super long time? And we're not even doing that. Like even the stuff we agree with, we're not, the basic stuff we agree with, we're not doing. Leket, pea, like leaving something for the poor out of what we have, not using everything we have for us and getting more and only being worried about getting more. I just, so I'm not sure, Alex, if I'm answering your question, but kind of that, that's, that's kind of the, the point, I think, of studying this stuff at all is how do we reconstruct it? How do we take the tradition seriously so that it can 
it can influence how we think, how we behave, what choices we make. Um, and and I, I wish we'd had time. I, I pulled up some stuff for you on, you know, Rambam, Maimonides, Rambam, Nachmanides, you know, what they think holiness means. And they talk a lot about moderation. They talk about even within the things that are permitted, can we be moderate? Like, okay, so the, the wine you're drinking is kosher. Should you be, you know, drunk all the time? on kosher wine, you know, so here's the things that are permitted. Should you be a glutton? Uh, and so I just, I think we need to be thinking beyond just what are the actions or non-actions, but kind of what is the approach to living a life informed by holiness? You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org